The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Bishop John, we love you. We're so glad that you're here. Thanks for shepherding me all these years and for guiding us um, here to Richmond and in planting Redeemer. And thanks for coming to preach to us this morning. Uh, Come on up. As Bishop John comes up, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, my pastor, your servant, Bishop John. Thank you for the way that he so wisely and in such a godly way shepherds and oversees our diocese and in particular um, our parish here at Redeemer. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak through him to us this morning. Would you open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive your word to us through your servant, Bishop John. All this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Well, good morning. It is such a joy for Meg and me to be, to be back with you all. We are so blessed by this wonderful church. We love being with you. Uh, it was such a delight to uh, ordain Steve last night. God bless you, brother. So thankful for your ministry. Um, it's our last visit here, and so it's, it's a very sweet but bittersweet day for us to uh, acknowledge that we won't be able to come back in the same way as your, as your bishop in the future. But we are so profoundly blessed by our partnership in the gospel. And again, I want to say how grateful I am to the Lord for, for your rector, your pastor, Dan. Um, Dan, I'm always so blessed by your wise and humble leadership, um, your pastor's heart to see uh, Followers of Jesus join together in authentic community and to reach out and witness for Christ in this community. Um, so touched by your awesome preaching. Uh, for those who weren't here, Dan's sermon last night was a home run. That was just such a, a wonderful and powerful word uh, about serving the Lord and the, knowing the gospel in, in our culture and what it means to, uh, to know the truth in Jesus. It was just a beautiful, beautiful word. As some of you know, Dan not only oversees the work in church planning you're doing here, but serves on our team for our whole, for whole diocese. And I am just so blessed by his passion and leadership and, and wise gifting and experience. Um, he's also served on the uh, nominating committee that brought us a new bishop. And I'm very thankful for the uh, great way that Dan and the team uh, led us through a complex process over a year uh, leading to the election of Chris Warner uh, to be our new bishop. And I'm just so thankful for him, uh, who's been called to come in as, as my successor, and very grateful to Dan and the committee for the th- amazing prayerful way they went through that complex process of leading to the election of our, of our new guy. Um, so, Dan, you and Rachel are an awesome team. Um, just so blessed by being assaulted by your children this morning as they arrived. <laughs> and you're doing a wonderful job, my friend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, to the members of the vestry, to the staff and clergy team here, uh, thanks to you all for what you pour out in service of our Lord. I'm very, very blessed and grateful. Um, our whole diocese is excited about the coming launch of All Souls as you send out um, 
Danny and David and a host of folks and commission them to, uh, to start that new church and to have Lewis in the on-deck circle um, preparing to, to, to launch out um, in the future. Uh, it's, everywhere I go, people ask about what's happening in our diocese, and I love to brag about you all. I love to tell Redeemer stories, uh, and people are so encouraged to, to hear what God's doing among you. So thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your leadership. God bless you all. Well, let's turn to, to God's word. Our gospel reading this morning is the story of the prodigal son, that rebellious one who turned away from his sin and experienced forgiveness of all that he'd done. But he experienced more than forgiveness, more than just forgiveness of his guilt. He experienced healing from guilt's hidden companion, shame. I first met my friend Gene as he came to lead a men's retreat for the church I served in Woodbridge. Gene told us his story of being molested and then exposed to pornography as a young boy. He became addicted to porn. And being a good Christian boy, he tried to stop, but he would find himself drawn back to it again and again. Over the years, the images weren't enough and he began to be drawn into the seamy world of so-called adult entertainment. By then, he was a pastor and serving a local church. But his secret addiction and secret sins only increased. As Gene expresses it, shame told me I was unworthy. I was dirty. I was disgusting. I was not worth loving or protecting. Finally, he acted out in a way that got him arrested. He lost everything, his ministry, his marriage, and he went to prison. But God wasn't done with him. Through a godly man who discipled him and led him through a work of deep healing, Gene discovered a calling to reach out to men and women caught in addiction and in sexual brokenness. Gene has spoken to more than 60,000 college students about the addictive power and harm of pornography. He told me that students will line up until three in the morning just to talk with him after his address, because even as teenagers, they've already experienced such deep sexual brokenness. Gene's testimony and his ministry have touched so many lives. As Gene came to understand, shame is not the same thing as guilt. Guilt is what I rightly feel when I've done something bad. But shame is believing that I am bad. Guilt says, you did something wrong. And shame says, that's why you need to hide. You're no good. Shame is not just a feeling. Shame is a deep-seated belief that constantly wears away at our sense of worth. Shame is always hammering us with the burden of our past, our sins and failures, our inadequacies on the job, the secrets in our families. Shame tells us that if anyone found out what we're really like, we'd be rejected. Guilt shows us we need to confess our sins so that we can be forgiven. But shame keeps us and our sin locked away in darkness. 
As psychologist Kurt Thompson points out in his amazing book, The Soul of Shame, the parts of us that feel most broken and that we keep most hidden are the parts that contain our shame. And these are the parts that most desperately need to be opened before God so that he can show us his love and bring us his healing. I once took a continuing education seminar on alcoholism and addiction. We were being taught about shame, and it was pretty intense. To illustrate the point, and perhaps in the hope of lightening the heaviness in the room, the trainer invited someone to volunteer to share the story of their most embarrassing moment in life. Well, an intensive care unit nurse actually volunteered, and she told about the time she was driving home from work. She said she was still wearing her scrubs, which in her hospital they weren't supposed to do. And she said that might have contributed to her mentality of, you know, I'm out to save the world. And as she was driving, she came upon the scene of a terrible car accident. Wrecked cars were everywhere. Bodies were lying in the street. A paramedic was doing CPR on a guy who was stretched out on the pavement. And as she screeched to a halt, she said she could instinctively tell that the paramedic didn't know what he was doing. So she threw open her car door, ran over, knocked the paramedic off the guy, thumped his chest, at which point the guy sat up and someone yelled, cut, where did she come from? She had driven into the shooting of a scene from the streets of San Francisco. Now, the nurse was embarrassed, to be sure, but shame goes far beyond being embarrassed about what we've done. Shame says that what we've done defines who we are. We are bad. We are no good. We are irredeemable. We're beyond hope. Guilt and shame are connected, but they're not the same thing. Just in the same way, forgiveness and healing are connected, but they're not the same thing either. We can confess our sin and accept God's forgiveness for what we've done, and yet still be held captive by shame. We still need God's healing grace to set us free from shame. The Bible is so very clear about this, even though we often miss it. Our culture is a guilt and forgiveness culture. Guilt and forgiveness is the primary lens through which we see our misdeeds and the misdeeds of others. But the Bible is set in a shame and honor culture. And we sometimes overlook the dimension of shame and healing that's in the biblical story. Now, if you look back at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, you can see that Jesus addressed the story of the prodigal son and two other parables to two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners, but also Pharisees and scribes. He spoke to people whose notorious sins meant they were far from God. And he also spoke to people who stood in judgment of the others, and in so doing showed that they were just as far away from God. The story begins with a father and his two sons. 
The younger son had wanted his inheritance as a gift now while his father was still alive. He was, in effect, saying to his father, drop dead. It was an outrageous and insulting request. And Jesus' audience would have expected that the father slapped his son and drove him out of the house. But no, the father, who is standing in the place of God, grants the request And from then on, the father endures what one writer has called the agony of rejected love. The son, of course, goes off, follows his own path of self-indulgence. He goes far away, so he'll be free from his father's watchful eye or the eye of anyone who might know his family and tell his father what he's been doing. He wastes his inheritance in riotous living, finds himself left with nothing. He wanted to be free, but he ended up in bondage. Bondage to economic want and bondage to his own sin and sinful nature. He lost his inheritance and he lost his character. Then the great famine came upon that land. None of the so-called friends that he'd made with his money could or would help him. Disillusioned, hungry, He takes the lowest and most repulsive form of servile labor for a Jew. He tends pigs, which were unclean animals forbidden for a Jew to eat. But even the pigs ate better than he did. He is put to utter shame. But then God stirs his heart. And it says in verse 17, he came to himself. What a wonderful phrase. He came to himself. By God's grace, he came to see himself honestly for who he was and for what he had become. And that's the key first step, isn't it? To see the truth about ourselves. Because before we can receive the good news of God's love and forgiveness, we have to face the bad news about ourselves and our need. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He doesn't wallow in self-pity, but he shows true remorse and repentance. He has faith that his father will not reject him. He knows he deserves nothing. In the past, in his pride, he has demanded his rights, his inheritance. But now, in humility, he says he's no longer worthy to be called a son. In the past, he'd rebelled against his father. Now, he will do his father's bidding as a hired servant. To turn to God, we must first realize that God doesn't owe us anything. We don't deserve to be accepted as a child of God. We don't justify ourselves or make excuses. We don't expect God to feel sorry for us. We sincerely confess our sins and admit our need for what only God can do for us. Forgive us and restore us. And so he goes. He demonstrates his repentance by turning and going to his father. His father sees him while he's still a long way off because his father has been watching for him day after day. His heart is full of compassion for his rebellious son. His father's never stopped loving him. He's never written his son off. 
And now he runs to his son. Running was an undignified thing for a respected man of the community to do in that, in that culture. But the father runs to his son, embraces him, and kisses him. His son starts off with his prepared confession. But before he can ask to be treated as a hired servant, his father interrupts him, calls for him to be dressed in his best robe with a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. The father doesn't just say, I forgive you. And he isn't merely putting suitable clothes on him. In covering his son's rags and his bare feet, he is covering his son's shame. He is dressing him as a son so that he comes into the house forgiven and honored and restored to the family. Bring the fattened calf, the one reserved for the special occasion. Let's celebrate. For my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now is found. And so there is celebration. There is great joy in the house. The tax collectors and the sinners who've been listening to Jesus' teaching are hearing this and they're wondering in their hearts, could God forgive even me? Would he cover my shame? Would God welcome me? In our New Testament reading, we heard the Apostle Paul say, I am not ashamed. In, In that, Paul was most assuredly not saying, I have nothing to be ashamed of. Quite the opposite. Paul's past was full of shameful things that he'd done. But Jesus covered those with the blood he shed for Paul. Paul isn't proud of his sinful past, but neither is he trying to cover it up. God's mercy transformed Paul's shameful past into a glorious testimony to the Lord's goodness and his love. By God's grace, even our most grievous sins and our deepest wounds become our testimony to God's forgiveness and healing. But Jesus goes on with his parable and he has the scribes and Pharisees in mind for this part. The older brother has been away from the house too. He's been working, but working in the fields and not partying. He returns and finds out what's happened and he is angry. Angry that his little brother has been received back into the family. Angry that his dad was throwing a party for him. It is not right. He should be punished, not celebrated. And so he refuses to go into the house. His father goes to him just like he did with his younger son and he urges him to come to the party as well. But the son insults his father by refusing to go in with him to be with their guests. He says to the father, look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command. And in that he shows exactly how he sees his relationship with his father. He's more a slave than a son. He doesn't see how much his father loves him and cherishes him. He doesn't love his father in return. He thinks he deserves to be honored because he has been such a good son. He has obeyed all the father's rules. He's worked hard. He's earned his place in his father's house. And so he looks down on his brother as a moral failure. He won't even call him his brother. He calls him this son of yours. 
Well, this is the attitude of the Pharisees, like the Pharisee who thanked God in the temple that he wasn't a sinner like other people. You see, when the older brother says that his younger brother doesn't deserve to be forgiven, he's showing that he doesn't believe in forgiveness at all. He believes he's earned his father's love and his brother hasn't. But that's not what love is. And that's not the gospel. Grace is free. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have God bless us. And we don't serve him in order to get him to love us. No, we humbly ask for forgiveness. And then we live for Christ out of gratitude for his mercy in our lives. We forgive others the way Christ forgave us. We pour out our hearts in prayer for our kids. We work for justice. We offer our talents to those in need. We tithe our income and more. We work for God on the job, working honestly and treating others respectfully, not to earn God's love, but out of thankfulness for what Jesus has done in taking his sins upon himself, our sins upon himself, dying for us on the cross. Romans 8 chapter 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you turn away from your sin, confess it to him, ask for his forgiveness, you are forgiven. There is no condemnation for you who have surrendered your life to Christ. But there is also to be no condemning of others. When you see someone who is living far from God, do you hope they'll get what they deserve? Or do you long for them to turn to Christ and find the mercy that you've experienced? Do you hope they'll repent and be forgiven? Or would you rather they just got punished? The judgmental attitude of the older brother isn't just found in the Pharisees of Jesus' day. It's in the hearts of a lot of us church folk It is all too tempting to think that somehow we deserve to be forgiven, but there are some really bad people out there who should be condemned and sent straight to hell. I'm sure a number of you at some point have gotten a letter calling you to jury duty, perhaps for a local trial or even a federal court. I've never been summoned to jury duty, but I did once get a letter from my county government informing me that I had been appointed condemnation commissioner for the coming year. That's right, condemnation commissioner. If the county were to take private property for public use, like a road or some such, and the property owner fought the takeover or wouldn't accept the amount that the county paid, the owner could appeal the matter to the condemnation commissioner, meaning me. As it happened, I was never called into service during my year. Let's be clear. You and I have not been appointed as God's condemnation commissioner. Thinking we get to judge other people as unworthy of forgiveness, as if we are worthy. The father responds to the older brother with love and compassion. But he so tenderly says that the son's accusations are false. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
That's not just a figurative statement. It's literally true. Because the younger son already got his share of the father's estate. Everything that's left goes to the older son. And the father isn't rewarding bad behavior with the party for his younger son. It's just that they had to celebrate. Because as he says, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There is no condemnation for those who put their trust in Jesus and confess their sins. God wants everyone to turn to him and be saved. He wants hedonistic, secular people like the younger brother, and he wants proud church people like the older brother. We all need God's grace, his undeserved gift of forgiveness. We don't deserve forgiveness on, because of any merit on our part. What I've done doesn't somehow make me worthy of forgiveness. It's what Jesus has done for me that makes me worthy. Many years ago when Meg and I were first buying a house, I was really concerned about how much to offer. How much was this house actually worth? So I asked our realtor, how much is it worth? And with a pat on my shoulder, he said, John, you need to understand, it is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. And you are of infinite worth because Jesus paid for you with his life offered on the cross. The Bible says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. My friend Bishop Bill Murdoch for many years pastored a church north of Boston. The church was trying to get the money they needed to buy a house for their assistant rector to live in. And as Bill was praying about this great need for money, he felt the Holy Spirit remind him about the painting. Well, Bill knew what that meant. The church had an old painting of a Madonna and child, Mary and the baby Jesus. No one liked it. It was ornate, it was overdone, and so it was stuck away in the back of the closet in Bill's office with a sheet of newsprint over it to protect it. But he thought, well, let's find out what it might be worth. So he gave it to a parishioner, a Marine who, retired Marine who knew nothing about art, and he took it to some place in New Hampshire. The people in New Hampshire uh, said it wasn't worth anything. Well, Bill didn't feel right about that, so he said to the guy, take it to Harvard. So he took it to Harvard, and Harvard said, it's not worth anything. Bill still didn't feel right about that, so he said, take it to Christie's, the famous auction house. And so he did. The next day, Bill got a phone call. The man said, my name is so-and-so, and I'm the head of the old master's division of Christie's, and I'd like to come and see your painting. Really, Bill said, where are you calling from? London. When do you want to see my painting? Tomorrow. Well, the man came and looked at the painting. It was painted on wood, and Bill showed him some artist's preliminary sketches that were drawn on the back that were later incorporated into the painting on the front. The man was very interested in that. And then finally he said, this painting is hanging in the National Gallery of Canada in Toronto. But we'd always known it had been copied. 
And Bill said, you mean this is a copy of a famous painting? The man said, no, this is the original. The copy is in the National Gallery. It had been painted by Andrea del Sarto in the 1500s, and it ended up selling at auction for $1.1 million. Something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it, whether it's hidden in a closet or hung in the National Gallery. And you are of infinite worth because of what Jesus paid for you. Like the prodigal son and my friend Gene, our life is no longer to be shrouded in shame and hidden in darkness. God's great desire is for us to know our true value in spite of all the sins that we've done and all the lies that we've believed so that we may become a shining testimony of God's healing grace. And like the older brother, we need to turn away from our pride and judgment of ourselves and others, repenting of the arrogance that sees us as deserving of God's love and forgiveness while others just deserve to be condemned. Friends, don't let guilt or shame or a judgmental spirit keep you in darkness. Turn to the Lord Jesus who sees you and knows you as you really are and declares that you are of infinite worth. Come to this table to receive him in his body and blood. Come and receive prayer from the prayer teams. Talk to the clergy or one of the staff. Come to Jesus for the forgiveness and the healing that he longs for you to experience now and forever. Amen.